go on back and find your seats again, please. And you can open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And on behalf of Phil, um, I think we both would say this. Phil, you can stop me anytime. But uh, we love um, serving the Lord together with all of you. We love Sovereign Grace Church. And we are extremely grateful um, to be able to do this together with all of you every Sunday and day in and day out. And it really is a joy for us to pastor here Um, at this church. So thank you, uh, Glenn. Thank you for your kind words. I was telling Glenn, um, as Glenn has retired, what, two years ago, Glenn? He's not in here. Anyways, he retired two years, so he can't even defend himself at this moment. Um, He's gotten more and more involved in this church, and he does a lot of things with the men's ministry. So if you ever show up to that, he's doing a lot of the speaking, and then he gets up here, and as he was talking, I was like, Phil, I just told Glenn, Glenn, our church needs your voice. Because when he starts talking, I just like, it's like soothing. And what I mean by that is this, is I'm a Yankee, okay? I grew up in northern Michigan. Phil grew up in Japan, and I think your parents are Midwestern, or that's where you landed, right? Went to school in the Midwest, and so it, you probably notice my voice sounds nothing like Glenn's voice. And Phil's voice sounds nothing like Glenn's voice, and Glenn's voice sounds like a voice should sound in the South, and I just think that's soothing, and there's something about it. I tell him, and he, I went up here, and I, I told him, I said, Glenn, I love when you talk, and he's like, you're always saying that. Why are you saying that? I said, because you, you talk like you grew up in the South. That's it. There's nothing real special about it, but it, it's just good, wasn't it? It's good. You're going to hear a lot of Yankee and a lot of youper out of me sometimes, and I, sometimes I can go a little too far with it, but that has nothing to do with our message today. Um, and all that to say is I'm very grateful, Phil's very grateful for all of you, your kindness to us, your prayers for us, um, and your generosity towards us. Uh, it's not overlooked, and so thank you. Thank you for being so kind, and thank you for loving us and our families so well. Now we're going to jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The preacher writes the following. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? 
For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning before your word, we ask that you would make yourself known to us. Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, you would soften our hearts, that we would receive your word, or that you would give us those ears that we need to hear, that we would be good listeners. Or that you would give us discernment so that we might discern what it is you're saying to us. And that we might respond appropriately. Lord, by submitting to you and your word. Lord, that we would be doers of the word and not people who just listen. People who just kind of look at the mirror and make no changes at all. But Lord, we would look into your word this morning, eager with great expectation for you to speak to us. And so, Lord, give us that heart to hear, understand, and apply. Lord, bless us as we gather in this context now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you know, Solomon has been on this hunt. He's been looking around at life, looking at life under the sun, trying to figure out what, what's the purpose of all of this. What what is that one thing or a couple things? What are those things that are going to get us out of bed in the morning and are going to keep us moving forward each day? And so he's been on the hunt for that as he's just looking at life. He's been looking at what does life look like apart from God? Is there anything found in life under the sun that truly satisfies? So he's looked at a bunch of things and now he, he, he turns our attention to the house of God, or in our context, to church, to life together. And so in my study of this section of Scripture, my, my mind goes all over the place as I'm thinking through this. And so I was sitting there, and I was studying, and I was looking, and for some reason, this question popped into my head. Well, how do you build a mega church? Has anybody ever thought of that? Maybe, if you don't want to raise your hand. I did, and so I was sitting in front of my computer, and I just, you know, hit up the old Google and came across a number of articles. This was kind of one of those funny articles, but, but it, it kind of gets at what you would kind of expect. And so if Sovereign Grace Church wants to be a mega church, if, if that's what we want to make our aim, if we want to fill this place four or five times over with some, with some extra local sites where we could broadcast... Here's what this one author said. He gave us 10 things. He says, be improbably good looking and well presented. I didn't wear a hoodie today. I wore just a a nice t-shirt. And if you notice, there's khaki pants and some boots, not some shoes. I was telling somebody this morning, there is a standard. My standard, but anyways, there is a standard. But that's it. You You got to be good looking and well presented. And then on top of that, he says, Marry a good-looking woman so that you can talk about her as being your hot wife. Number three, pick a suburb or a subculture. Number four, come up with an edgy name for your church. Sovereign Grace, I don't know that that really does it. I don't know if it's edgy. 
but it tells you what we believe. Five, come up with position titles. And I think what he was getting at is some pretty cool titles. And so instead of just pastor, and sometimes somebody called me Aaron today, and I said, it's Reverend Anderson. And then I think you followed up with, no, I'll just call you pastor. Yeah, so we got, we'd mess around with that a little bit. Number six, pick some cool venues. I mean, this thing right here, it doubles as a school. You go in these classrooms, I think they teach... Fifth grade? Second grade. Second grade. And look at we got a new floor with a sweet logo on it. So get some cool venues. And by venues, it means multi-site meetings. Number seven. And this is where I, I've thought about this a lot, not just when I was hitting the Google this week, but I've thought about this as a church. And we've actually had leadership team meetings about this. And it's, so he says hire a marketing team. We, we haven't had serious conversations about hiring a marketing team, but we do talk about how, how do you let people know that we're here? I, I, th- I think some of these things are really important, but this guy's going at it in a funny way. So hire a marketing team. Build, number eight, build a functional and edgy website. We're, um, people come to our church that are new sometimes, and this might be you this morning, but like, we, we don't do technology well as a church. Like, 2020 hit us really hard with COVID, and we had to start live streaming things. Like, if you notice, we don't live stream anything here. And one of the reasons is, I'm sure there's people that can do it, but we're just not very good at it. Like, we get a, we get a camera, and it's not like the great camera. And then, really, the only person who watches our live stream is going to be my mom. She lives in Michigan, and then my aunt who also lives in Michigan. And then they'll text me at some point and they'll say something, but they just want to show up in some way to support me. So we're not great with that. Uh, Where am I at here? We already hit website nine. Set up a publishing and recording company. I get it. I get it. You got to get a good product out there. And then number 10, stir up a controversy. That works, right? You stir something up so then people are going to Google your name and then they're going to come check you out and they're either going to hate you or they're going to love you. It's kind of the society we live in. They're either going to support what they think you're doing or they're going to write bad things about you, which just creates more buzz, which gets your name in the news. And if your name's in the news, that means more and more people are going to see you and more and more people might just show up. If our goal was to just fill this room with people every Sunday so that we could have a large church and make a name for ourselves, we'd have to change a lot of things about who we are. As I look at a list like this and I think about other things, we would have to change a lot of things about us. The primary thing we'd have to change is the focus of our meeting. From glorifying and worshiping God to meeting the needs and desires of the people around us. We'd have to hire that marketing team to find out what do people want out there so that we could then go meet that need so that we could bring them in here. And so there's a shift. You see the shift? It's it's no longer about worshiping God. It's no longer about being gospel-centered. It's about being people-centered. It's about meeting the needs of the people in our community, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? We want to care for people. We want to be aware of needs in our community, but that's not the main reason we gather together on a Sunday morning. 
We don't ever want to move away from worshiping God. We don't ever want to move away from being gospel-centered. But if we did, we'd also have to, I think, we'd probably have to run this place and this church more like Apple runs their business than a church seeking to glorify God. And there's nothing wrong with the way Apple necessarily runs their business. They put out cool products. We ask, most of you probably have a product from them in some way, and they do it in such a way that some of you might even just line up on that day they release that new phone. They've figured out the marketing scheme, and they figured out a way to trap us so it's really hard to get away from that phone to a different phone because your whole life's on it. You get the point. They do that well, but we're, we're not a business. We're not Apple. We are people created in the image of God whom God has called whom God has saved, whom God has united together through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we don't gather necessarily to be just like that. We gather to worship God. We gather to glorify His name in all that we seek to do each and every Sunday morning. See, worship is not all about us not about our desires, our likes, our preferences, and our wants. God is not a means to an end for us. He's not our personal shopper or genie in a bottle who is there to give us whatever it is we want, whenever it is we want it. I read a story about a man this past week who was considering walking away from the church because he felt like God was ignoring him. And so he was a man who had grew up in the church and sort of fell away for a little bit during his 20s. And then when he hit 35, he came back to church because he was very interested in finding a wife. And so as he thought about his future and he thought about what he wanted in his future was he wanted a wife and he wanted some kids. And so he thought, well, I'm going to go back to church. And so he went back to church and he got really involved. He started serving in places that they needed help in serving. He said he even started tithing regularly. He became a member of this church. He was a faithful person in this church. But he came to this point where he's just thinking, is this worth it? Why am I doing all of this? And the reason he was asking that question is because he really wanted a wife. And so he thought, if I just show up to church and God sort of sees me doing these things, then, then God is going to for sure provide me what I want. And what he wanted was a wife. And so guess what happened? God wasn't providing him a wife. And so he found himself at this crossroads of, is it worth it? See, his view of God and the way he approached the church was that God was sort of his personal shopper. God was his personal servant. If, if he just did these things and approached God in these ways, then surely God would meet his needs in the way that he wanted his needs met. But that's not what happened. I don't know the end of that man's story. We don't gather on Sunday mornings to check in with God so that he can see our faithfulness and then give us what we want or what we need during the week. We gather together each week to experience God's goodness, to stand in awe of his greatness, to sing his praises in songs like we just sang, 
together as a body. We gather to hear God speak to us as his word is being read and through his word being preached so that we might then respond appropriately by his grace. And so that all kind of falls under the banner of worship. And that's what we do when we gather on Sunday. And what we're going to learn from this text is this truth. Religion is meaningless without a proper fear of God. Therefore, we must seek to worship God with a proper fear of Him. So there's a key there. The the key in what we do on Sundays, the key when we gather together as a church, what Solomon is going to teach us is, is that we fear God. That we stand in awe of him. That we remember who he is and who we aren't. Meaning we are not him. He is God Almighty reigning and ruling over all things. And so when we gather together, this is about him. And he wants to accomplish his good purposes in the context of his church gathering each and every Sunday. And so when we come to gather on Sundays and we gather together as a body... Solomon's going to say the key, the key is fearing God, respecting him, standing in awe of him, listening to him, and responding with obedience to him. And so we're going to dig into that truth by taking a look at four four observations that Solomon sort of makes as he looks at life in the house of God during his time. In our first point, we learned that listening and obeying God is far better than going through the motions of offering meaningless sacrifices to God. And so my points are kind of wordy this morning. They're they're usually just like three words, but I added a number of words. But they they get across what I I think Solomon is, is trying to teach us here. And what he's saying here is listening, actually listening to what God is saying and then and then responding appropriately through obedience to God. That that's far better, far better than just showing up and making meaningless sacrifices by just going through the motions when you're seeking to worship God. And so chapter 5 begins with Solomon commanding his readers to pay close attention to their lives and hearts as they approach God to worship Him. Verse 1, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is far better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So Solomon was searching for meaning, again, looking at life and a reason to live with joy. He looked at the house of God and what he saw, and if you went back a few verses, what, what you'd see is he already told us, he said, I, look, I looked in the place of righteousness and what I saw there was wickedness. So that was earlier in or chapter 4, but now he, he takes us there and he's going to show us what he, he kind of meant by that. And so he's looking at the house of God and, and he saw people showing up bunch of people probably, showing up, seeking to approach God without caution and without respect. Instead, he saw them making sacrifices as if, I would imagine, they were just kind of showing a ticket to somebody, if you were going to a concert, just kind of, here's my ticket, and they get into the concert. Just this casual sort of, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing who's been doing this for a very long period of time. He didn't see a genuine worship of God, but instead he tells us he saw something foolish. People making meaningless sacrifices 
And not just foolish, he calls it evil. In Solomon's day, the temple was a place where God's presence specifically and uniquely dwelled with his people. It was there that the people of God would travel from all over the land to worship God. And God had given them a set of regulations in the sense of when you come here, this is what this looks like. This is, what, this is how you approach me. And so he had these different festivals, and they would worship him in these ways. They'd, they'd make offerings, and they'd have a high priest they have, who would enter the Holy of Holies once a year in a specific way, very specific, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the people of God so they can continue to dwell with God and continue to worship him. One man, once a year, serious business. And what Solomon saw was he saw a bunch of people doing a bunch of different things, kind of just going through the motions, forgetting that, that God's holy, forgetting that he's perfect in all of his ways, instead just doing the socially acceptable thing. They weren't drawing near to God with open ears and open hearts, but instead they were simply making their sacrifices, which Solomon tells us were the sacrifice of fools. Again, this means what they were doing is they were just going through the motions. Hearts not really engaged. It means they weren't really seeking to glorify God because they weren't really acknowledging God as being their God for who He is. Just doing what everybody else was doing. Does this sound familiar? Have you ever found yourself just sort of going through the motions on a Sunday morning? walk through those doors, get greeted by the same people every Sunday. Maybe even you say the same thing to them or something similar in a similar way. Maybe you, you sit in the same seat. I know most of you do. I see it. It doesn't mean you fall into this category, but I know like we're just creatures of habit, except for sometimes people move over to this side from that side and for all various reasons. But, but do you ever do that? Do you ever just walk through those doors, put your stuff in the same seat, greet the same people, stand for the same number of songs, get your little break, go talk to somebody, drop your kids off, come back, listen to the message, and just do that over and over and over again. And when you leave, you, you just sort of forget what you even did. Maybe you take communion but you're not really paying attention to, to why you're doing what you're doing. Because there's a lot of warnings there. Before we take it, we talk about the importance of, of why we're taking this together and the warnings behind it. And so we can just go through the, mess, or go through the motions. How many messages do you think you've sat through in your lifetime? How many messages have you found yourself actually listening to and then responding to? How many messages have you sat through and, and never once looked back at it or had the thought of, maybe I should apply this? How many messages have you showed up to eager and expected for God to speak to you so that you might hear his voice, that he might give you some direction for the life that he's called you to live? It's easy to just go through the motions. I don't, I don't say this as, as somebody seeking to condemn you. I, I know how hard this is sometimes because life happens. I remember getting saved and 
getting involved in church and, and finding this temptation just, just to be so real, where I would show up on Sunday and we'd start singing, and, and my mind would just be thinking about what I was doing after church. Just kind of going through the motions, reading the words as they're coming across the page, but, but, but just, just thinking, what am I going to do after? Where am I going to eat? Or thinking about whatever is going to go on except for what we were doing. Again, that's just going through the motions. And it's easy to do it even today. I have to fight really hard to be intentional sometimes. I even had to create a rule for myself. I think I've shared this with you at times, but Saturdays are not, not like my social days or my social evenings. I have this little rule. I've got to be in my neighborhood by 6 p.m. I'd like to be heading to bed around 9 p.m. Because I have to get up on Sunday and do certain things, whether I'm preaching or I'm not preaching. If I'm not preaching, I give myself a little slack and I can stay out a little bit later. But if I'm preaching, that's a pretty hard, fast rule. And the reason for it is because I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go through the motions for myself. And I don't want to go through the motions for you as God's called me to serve you in some way. Because when we go through the motions and we make these meaningless sacrifices... Solomon says it's foolishness and it's evil. The Lord has called us to listen, to hear him, and to obey him. Daniel Aiken writes the following. He says, worship has to do with whether you you obey the revealed will of God laid out in the Bible. You can come to as many worship gatherings as you want and raise your hands high in the air. But if you cannot obey God's word, then you have a worship problem. So what he's doing there is he's helping us understand worship is not just singing. Worship's all of life. Worship involves us fearing God, listening to what God is saying to us through his word, and then seeking to apply his word, seeking to obey what God has called us to do. James, in chapter 1, verse 22, he says something similar. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So a fool hears, but doesn't obey. And what Solomon says is, is that's what I saw when I went to the house of God. I saw people offering up their sacrifices, going through the motions, but not actually listening, not actually worshiping God. It's a temptation we all fight. Let us fight this temptation. Let us fight the temptation to just show up to just check the box, to just do what we always do. Let us fight it by asking God to pour out His Spirit upon us, to give us ears to hear and a heart to to passionately love Him and a fear of God and an excitement to know that, that God is at work when we gather. He wants us to gather. He wants to speak to us. He's going to direct us. He's going to lead us. The second thing we learn is that praying with humility to God is far better than trying to manipulate God with our words. So not only should we be good listeners when we seek to worship God, but in these next two verses, Solomon tells us that we need to be careful 
with how we actually speak to God when we cry out to God in prayer. He said, be not rash with your mouth, let not, or, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Solomon commands us here, he said, just, just be careful. He's not saying don't pray. He's just saying, be careful when you pray. Be careful when you actually open up your mouth and you start speaking to God. And part of that be careful is sort of fueled by this, this truth that, that remember it is who you're talking to. You're talking to God who's in heaven. And oh, by the way, you're here on earth. He's just kind of giving us a little perspective here. Again, the key is the fear of God. He, he's not our personal shopper. He's not our genie in the bottle. He's so much more great than just the big man upstairs. He's so much bigger than that. He is the creator of all things. He's perfect in all his ways. He knows all things all the time. He's the one who's ruling and reigning over everything. He's in control all the time, everywhere. And he calls us into this relationship with him, and he calls us to cry out to him in prayer. And what Solomon is saying is, be careful when you speak. Be careful when you open up your mouths and you start to make your requests. As I think about this, and I think about what Solomon was looking at and what he's seeing, that I think in some ways on how we relate is, is, is sometimes we think we can manipulate God into giving us what we want. And what, what came to my mind as I was thinking through this is, you know, sometimes there's this prayer voice. Have you ever heard of a prayer voice? It's like we, I'm talking to you like this, and all of a sudden it's time to pray. And, and I'm not making fun of anybody here, but it, it's getting... It, because we, we can do this, but I think it's what, it's at, what's at the heart of some of this is a manipulation. That's what Solomon is seeing. And so I'm talking to you normal, but then it's time to pray to God, and it's, oh, Lord, please. And it can be this tone. And again, I can't read hearts here, and Solomon, I think, would say it's about the heart because it's about fearing God. But what, he, what he's getting after here is, and what he's seeing is he went to the house of God and he's watching people cry out and they're trying to manipulate God into giving them what they want when they want it, thinking that God serves them in some special way as opposed to just fearing God, trusting him to be at work in all things. The issue is the heart and God knows our heart better than we do. He also knows us and our situations better than we do. He knows how to answer really good prayers and he knows how to answer really bad prayers too because he's God. In Matthew 6, verse 7, he writes the following. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So this is not a formula, but again, he's getting after this, this way in which he's seeing people thinking they can manipulate. If I just ask God enough, 
And if I just say it in this way, then he'll really hear me, then he'll really know I mean business, and then I'll really get what I want. And the warning we're getting from Solomon and the warning we get from Matthew is don't do that. Fear God. Trust that he's really at work in all things. Trust that he really does know all things and he's all-powerful and very, very able to know you and your situation and answer your prayers. And so again, what he's after is the heart. Don't, Don't try to think you can manipulate him into giving you what you want. Don't let your words be many. Trust him. He's a good God. Daniel Aiken again wrote the following. He says, the problem is that we, think we can, that, that we think God can be manipulated like that. The answer to your prayer does not depend on what you say, how you ask it, how many words you use, or even the formality or casualness of your words. Rather, it depends on a heavenly Father who knows what is best for you. We have nothing to barter with or to offer God. We just ask with humble hearts, and we trust that how he answers is best. Isn't that freeing? So we continue to pray. We continue to ask. We continue to cry out to God. We continue to trust. And part of that trusting is we trust that whatever he gives us is best for us. And whenever he gives it to us is best for us. It's far better to pray with humility and let God be God than it is to think that we can actually control him. This leads us to our third point. Not making a promise to God is far better than making a promise to God and not keeping it. God is very kind and he's very gracious. However, he's also very holy. He's a serious God who's at work in all things and he cares deeply about every single detail of life. Every word that we say. He doesn't overlook a single thing. With this being said, Solomon wants us to know that we shouldn't think Again, that we can play games with God. You get this, like, you're starting to pick up on this theme. What he saw when he went to the house of God were people who didn't really care about God, but instead thought they could manipulate God. So he wrote this, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, the words grow many. There is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Vows were pledges that people of God would often make as part of their worship and offerings to God. A vow was typically made so that that God might answer a specific request. And so this was something that God invited his people into doing. Deuteronomy 12 verse 10, it says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. So it was part of the way in which the Lord said, okay, when you approach me, you can do this, and you should do this. And in Numbers 21, we see how this was taking place. 
And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. So vows were were seen as an act of worship and dependence upon God. They were a serious thing. And God takes these things seriously. Today, many people kind of do the same things, saying things like, Lord, if you, if you give me this job, and then when I get this job, I'll be a, a, a huge means of grace to these people, and I'm going to share the gospel with everybody I work with. Kind of like that. You're barter, starting to barter. You're making this promise. Lord, if you get me in here, I'm going to do this for you there. If you cure me of this sickness, you take it away from me, then, then I'm going to glorify you and make your name known in my neighborhood. If you give me someone to date, Lord, I'll stay pure until we get married. If you get me into this college, then I'm going to join a Christian ministry when I'm there. If you save my marriage, I promise I'll be a great husband. Or I promise I'll be a great wife. See, the problem that Solomon was seeing, though, was that once people made these vows, apparently they weren't really serious about it. Apparently they felt like they could, they could make a vow and then back out of keeping that vow. And so back in the day, they actually had people that would check in on them. That, hey, you made this vow. Did you keep it? And that's what he's getting at there. He's like, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. Or I made a mistake when I made that vow. I didn't really mean that. They wanted peace and comfort, but they didn't want the sacrifice. Once the pain of the situation is sort of over, we think that we can pull one over on God and and not really do what we say we were going to do. Have you ever done anything like this? Have you ever thought, like, if I just offer this up, then maybe God will give me that? And so you offer this up, and then God maybe gives you that. And then did you follow through on that? What Solomon is saying is God, God actually takes these things seriously. He, he pays close attention to what we say to him and how we say it to him. And he's also very kind and he's very gracious. How many times have you told God you would do something only never to do it? Think about this one. Think about marriage vows. A man and a woman will stand before God. I've had many opportunities to officiate these. And a lot of thoughts go through my head, especially when we get to the vows. And they promise before God, one another, family and friends, to love one another, to be committed to one another through sickness and health, through plenty and through want, for better or for worse, as long as they both shall live. This is a serious moment, isn't it? In weddings. It's kind of like a formality sometimes. You just kind of go through... The motions again, but as a pastor, I stand up there and we're doing these things and I'm reading these things. And a lot of times I'm thinking, you have no idea what you just committed to. I know all the people have been married for a long time and they're sitting there. They're probably praying. They're like, Lord, give them grace. My daughter is about to get married. My niece and I guess my new nephew-in-law, they got married. And I remember talking to my brother-in-law and I'm just saying, like, you have no idea which way this is going to go. Like, and what I mean by that is, is they're getting married and we marry them off in faith. We trust God to be good and work in their lives. And they're going to, my daughter and her future husband, they're going to say these vows similar to this. 
And what I tell them, and I tell people in private, is these will be tested. You will have plenty and you will have want. You will have sickness and you will have health. There will be really, really good days and there will be really, really bad days. There will be hard days. There will be days that I bet you don't even imagine on your wedding day. But it's in that vow. Serious business. The Lord pays attention to these things. And we know people who have broken these vows. We know people who have loved the good days. But the bad days have been so bad we can't persevere through it. And I know the Lord has given exceptions. This isn't a condemnation of all. Please don't hear that. There are exceptions. And Jesus would say part of that exception and the main reason for that exception is because of hardness of heart. One spouse or the other. So what Solomon is saying is it's better not even to make a promise if you're just going to make it and break it. See, the key is we fear God. And that leads us to our final point. True worship of God is rooted and grounded in a genuine fear of Him. A genuine fear of God. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. The point that Solomon has been trying to make here is that going through the motions and just simply doing the socially acceptable things in our worship of God is all meaningless if our hearts are not really in it. If we're doing them for all the wrong reasons, he says, it's foolishness. It's evil. We cannot approach God as if He is our servant that we can manipulate into doing what we want. We're called to fear Him. We're called to respect Him. We're called to honor Him. We're called to stand in awe of His greatness, recognizing we will stand in His judgment one day. And on that day, we hope to be standing actually in Christ, who took our judgment on our behalf, whom God sent because He so loved us, to live a perfect life, to keep every vow perfectly, so that He might die on a cross and pay the penalty for all of our sins. You see, our hope on that day is Christ. Our hope is in God's love for us and sending Jesus to save us so that we might approach God in worship of Him with an appropriate fear of Him. And that's good news, isn't it? So as we gather together, may we gather together with a genuine fear of God that leads us into a right worship of Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning and the opportunity to just gather together in a context like this. And we ask that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us. For Lord, we want to worship You rightly. We want to fear You. Lord, we don't, we don't want to draw away from you. We want to draw near to you. Lord, recognize you're good, you're gracious, you're holy, you're perfect in all your ways. And so, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us that we would pursue this relationship with passion and humility. That we'd honor you every time we show up. Lord, even as we leave here, it would be different. And as we show up next Sunday, Lord, it would be different. There'd be this expectation. Lord, to hear you and to 
do what it is you call us to do, that we would seek to keep Christ at the center of our lives and all that we do as a local church. That you would receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.